understand the big picture performance of EMS agencies across the United States as outlined in the 2022 ESO EMS Index. It's based on data from more than 2,000 agencies and departments across the country and represents 9.9 million EMS responses between January 1st, 2021 to December 31st, 2021. Now in its fifth year, the 2022 ESO EMS Index not only examines the performance, but makes comparisons to the previous year's data. Therefore, the best practices are informed by several years of data, as well as their practical, first-hand experience of seasoned medical professionals. Download the index today by visiting ESO.com. Hi, I'm Will Chaplow with the International Pre-Hospital Medicine Institute, and welcome to our podcast. With me today are two of my partners, Greg Chapman and Mike Hunter, and we want to tell you a little bit about our mission and what we're trying to do. Our mission is to provide meaningful, relevant, timely, and affordable EMS education and information to providers all over the world. In doing this, uh, we publish textbooks, develop courses, and we like to have the reputation that if you have a need, we're going to find a way to make sure that that need is addressed. We enjoy what we do. We've been doing it for decades. We come from a wide variety of uh, fire service, EMS, nursing, all across the, and um, surgeons and medical directors with us are helping us to back up and write the content that we use. Greg, you wanted to say? Yeah, so I'm Greg Chapman. So I am currently the uh, director for Center of Pre-Hospital Medicine in Charlotte, North Carolina, working for Atrium Health. And, uh, you know, I've been in EMS since 1975. And one thing I've seen is we've had things change since 75. Things change quickly sometimes, sometimes for the good, sometimes for bad, sometimes with evidence and sometimes without it. Uh, but later on today, we're actually doing a presentation, the three of us uh, here at the conference, and we will be uh, addressing some of those controversies and looking at why things change. And that's gonna be interactive and very timely, just like our textbooks uh, and so forth. Michael? Hi, I'm Michael Hunter. I'm the Deputy Chief for EMS out in Worcester, Massachusetts. <clears throat> I, uh, we're a third service that uh, actually is employed by the local uh, hospital. So we work for UMass Memorial Medical Center, which is a wonderful place and an opportunity for an EMS provider because we're a tertiary care center. So we're on the cutting edge of the medicine and it's uh, great to see how what we're doing in the hospital um, and the research behind it, we get to implement uh, out in the field. I work really heavily with operations. We work to uh, bring the best medicine to our patients. And we're always on the, um, the front edge of trying to try something new or see something new. And that kind of works in with what we're doing here with IPHMI, because we're actually out there and seeing what's being done and being able to implement it. And ahead of the research or right on top of the research as it's being published and a lot of times being part of the research project for what what we've been doing right so so it's kind of interesting whenever you say research sometimes at a conference or study or even mention it to the you know the paramedic or the emt in the, in the streets you kind of see their eyes glaze over um you know one of the things that, that we do as part of this group is we partner with gems and every month we look at five current new research publications and we sort of break it down to is this really applicable to your field service the way you practice your medicine in the field and that's really important to us and you know we have a pretty good following there we you have people come in look at that because 
you know, sometimes you'll hear like paramedic goes, well, what do I need to know about research for? You know, my medical director is the one who decides what we're going to do in the field. They read all the research. Why should I? It's our profession. You know, it's our profession as paramedics and EMS providers and EMS practitioners. We need to be involved in those conversations. You know, clearly the medical director will establish your protocols and your scope of practice you're working under. But we can be involved in those conversations if we're informed and know what is, you know, the current research, know what your medical director is looking at. Um, find a way to look at that. I mean, it, there's very simple search engines that will give you the ability to look at the newest publications on every single topic. For instance, I set mine, I'm, I'm very interested in trauma care. So I have, I have a search engine that's set up that once a week, it'll deliver every new article or every new uh, study that's out there on pre-hospital trauma care. If that's in the title, it'll send me an email link to it, and then I can check the article to figure out if there's something that I need to incorporate, not only in my practice, but in the practice of our education, our students, and also here at IPMHI. So going back, Ray, what you said about our, our literature reviews and always being the operations guy, I, I really like... We, we keep a standard format when we write our lit reviews, and we're very fortunate that one of our partners is Dr. Peter Pons out in Denver, who's a great editor, and he keeps us uh, honest on the medicine part of everything we do. And, uh, but from a provider's perspective, I get to read an article. Um, when, when I write the review, I always try to find a way to make it relevant or, or state the topic a little bit off the article. It's not just a regurgitation of what was written in the article. You all can read that. But I try to put a perspective on it of, you know, what, what the topic is really about and why it needs to be looked at. Yes, we have to prevent, present the evidence of the article, um, but then there's always a recap. And I always look at it as like, well, what difference does it make to me as the street provider, the guy in the field? Is this something that's relevant? Did they nail it? Did they open up a question? And, you know, we just look at the research and try to make it applicable to the guys that are out on and right. gals that are out on the field. And, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And one, one thing that I always look at too, and Dr. Pons, Dr. Pons probably has written more true primary research than almost anybody that I know and published over his years in emergency medicine. And, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, I, I've learned from him by osmosis from just being around him is that, you know, the research needs to be applicable to you and where you work. You know, most research in EMS and, and research in EMS is relatively new. Uh, you know, a lot of our stuff in the past has been trickled down from the hospital that if it works in the emergency department, it should work in the field. And we've been caught up in a lot of times with you know, trying to move it to the field and just finding out that it doesn't work in the field. It only works in the emergency department, only works in the ICU, and it's really not applicable out in, in the field. To that end, when we look at research in uh, EMS, there's probably about four or five places in the country that publish good uh, EMS research. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, to do good research, you need a large number of cases to, re to review. Um, if you live in a large metropolitan city with a major trauma center or two or three major trauma centers within your city, that research may be totally applicable to you. If you live in a rural area with a 50 minute or 60 minute transport time to a trauma center, some of those things may not be applicable to how you manage your patient. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that paramedics in rural areas 
have to be more on their game than paramedics in the urban environment because, Mike, your paramedics, what, a five, 10 minute transport time to the medical center? Five minutes. Right. Mike and I used to work together on, uh, when we both were starting out our careers way back when we were partners on a truck. And we'd have sometimes where our response to the scene would be 60 minutes up in the hill towns of Massachusetts and then another 60 minutes back to a small community hospital. So, you know, looking at things like that, you know, that totally changes that paradigm. It's like, you can't be an algorithm paramedic in a rural area because your algorithm runs out in about 10 to 15 minutes. You know, you've got to use critical thinking skills. And that, that's one thing about our group that we always find is that, you know, we try to give people knowledge and, you know, look at this research. But one big thing is, is it applicable to where you work? And the good point about algorithms is um, one of the things that I always taught and uh, is kind of like common to all the partners in our group, including Dr. Lance Stuckey out of New Orleans, a trauma surgeon there, uh, and Steve Mercer out of Iowa, uh, is we encourage people to consider that algorithms and guidelines are set there to give you uh, an approach to figure out what your patient's needs are. But patients always forget which algorithm they're supposed to be in. So as situations change, this fund of knowledge, you know, that is our mission to provide, gives you the ability to do the critical thinking and to make those decisions and switch to what the patient's needs are and not what your expectations are. This focus that we've talked about on research, we've got nearly three years of papers that we've reviewed, um, allows us to have an open eye to the types of things that our publications and our courses are built around. Uh, my personal background, uh, I was a fire chief, a paramedic, um, a trauma nurse specialist, and ended up running a um, trauma training program at the American College of Surgeons before I retired and focused all of my time with this group. Um, and throughout my career, all of these specialties, whether I was a full-time educator or working in the field, I developed a short list of resources that I knew I could contact. We want to be, the Institute wants to be that resource. So when you call us, and if, we, if it's something that we can provide to you, we're going to be the one that says yes. And even if we can't do it, we'll still say yes, and we'll identify the resource that you're looking for. We want to be that place. We want to be the people you trust. My most frequent response when somebody takes one of our courses or gets one of our books is thank you for your trust in us. And we want to make sure we're good stewards of that trust, and we're going to continue to provide those things. Right. And, and one thing, too, when we're talking about research, we all know things change very quickly with research. You know, a new article can pop up tomorrow, um, you know, that says you're doing, you need to do this to have better patient care. You know, one of the things that, that we have is our model is what we call dynamic publishing. If something pops up tomorrow that should be in one of our textbooks or in one of our courses, our textbooks are printed one off. So uh, by our, by we self-publish by our, by our printing partner, Amazon and a few other companies. One thing that can be done is we can change the current things that are in that textbook tomorrow and by mid next week, that will be in every textbook that's purchased. So it's the most current uh, information that is available uh, out there is in our textbooks and in our courses. So, um, you know, that's one thing that we do because think about it, things change dramatically um, in our, uh, uh, the way we do EMS. So when I started EMS, I started in 1975. 
Um, went to respiratory therapy school in 1976. How is it that I'm older than you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I lied to the National Registry. I hope they don't listen to this. Um, I took my, exam, my, my National Registry exam when I was 17 years old as opposed to being 18. They never checked back then. Hmm. So, uh, you know, they, they always constantly thought I'm a year older than I am. I should have retired last year rather than this year. Um, but, but what's interesting is, is one of the things I look back at is, is I progressed through, you know, being an EMT, being an intermediate, and then being a paramedic was when we first started out as paramedics, we didn't intubate. You know, we used a, a superglottic airway. Uh, some of you may, may remember the EOAs and the EGTAs, what we used to call the old coelomeals. Um, <laughs> there were esophageal intubation devices. Um, we progressed past that relatively quickly when we proved to our medical directors that we could be trained and efficiently do endotracheal intubation. And now if you look at it, you read some of the literatures out there and it starts to talk about better patient outcomes. Guess what? with superglottic airways again. So we made changes way back when, sometimes with little or no true research behind it, behind it other than some expert uh, saying that we should do this. We should, you know, if we intubate in the hospital, we should intubate in the field. You know, if we do ultrasound in the hospital, we should do ultrasound in the field. And I think all of those have their place, but we need to be very quick not to do knee jerk changes based upon one research article or one expert saying that this is the way we should do it. Because again, everybody's situation is different. I think it's funny that um, the one constant in EMS is that things are always going to change. Um, and it's also interesting to see how things go full circle. You start talking about things like tourniquets where were popular became the instrument of the devil. And now they're an absolute necessity. You talk about um, the airway, uh, things we started with BLS airways progressed through to like video laryngoscopy now and the use of more and more superglottics and being acceptable. We always talked at our facility about I'll use a superglottic when you'll call an arrest with the superglottic in and not have to intubate around it. And, you know, it's it's happening now. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. So we use a um, what we call focus cardiac arrest in Charlotte, and it's a lot like the pit crew. And, you know, us in Seattle sort of got on board very early on with that model. And one of the things that we did was we trained up every one of our first responders, every firefighter and engine company was trained to drop a superglottic airway. And when we'd arrive on the scene, initially our protocols and basically said, you know, intubate around the superglottic. And then we found the superglottic was actually working very, very well. So we began to uh, have our paramedics assess the airway. Was it working well? Was it, um, you know, in place? Was it getting a good CO? Were you getting good chest drives? Were you getting good numbers in your end title CO2? If you were, we just left the superglottic airway in. And then we get to the ED and they were intubating around the superglottic airway. And in a short period of time, they found the same thing. So if we have ROS, return of, of spontaneous circulation, we were actually sending our patients up to intervention uh, cardiology to the cath lab with a superglottic airway in place. And we're letting anesthesia deal with whether they wanted to uh, do an endotracheal intubation on that patient because they were working so well. And you know, if you look at some of the studies, Again, not all the studies, but some of the studies point to better uh, cardiac arrest survival with the use of superglottic airways. And in trauma, it's even looking at 
you know, do you even need a superglottic airway? And there's some studies that sort of point the numbers and I'm not ready to jump on board and say, we shouldn't do any airways, but you know, they're working just fine and getting good results with a nasal pharyngeal or an oropharyngeal airway and a BVM. So if, if you think about that, and again, that's situational dependent. If I can see my level one trauma center from where I'm standing, you know, can I manage this guy's airway with a BVM and an and a OPA or an MPA to get him there? And how much time is that going to save me? And we all know, especially in trauma, that, you know, you know uh, time is blood. You know, how can I get him to the OR four or five minutes quicker if I'm not intubating this patient on the scene? And I guess that's questions that we all ask. Yeah, I think it goes right to what we were talking about earlier. And it just keeps tying it all in with the research and the critical thinking. It's like, that's critical thinking. It's like, what's going to actually benefit the patient? You know, it comes down to just because I can, should I? Is it better for the patient to actually get to the end point? Um, do you intubate, you know, pull over the side of the road, spend five minutes doing an RSI in the driveway of a hospital where you could just go into the ED and, you know, do it under a more controlled environment? Um, it was a classic scenario on like trauma cases. It's like, do you stop to intubate? Do you try to do it on the fly? And um, the research part of it, like I said, I'm the ops guy and not all research has to be large cohorts and very scientific with great p-values. I reviewed one article um, which someone had written a couple of years ago that was, that's on our website. And it was about uh, how to secure airways. And it was really interesting to me because they looked at how to secure endotracheal tubes, how much force was used to dislodge an endotracheal tube, how much force was used to dislodge an endotracheal tube with a commercial device holding it, and as well as a, uh, an improvised device holding it in place. But they also included superglottic airways. And that was a real eye-opener to me because I have dropped superglottic airways and have used just left them in place, like the LMA and left it in place and not necessarily secured it. And it was a real eye-opener to me as to how easily that superglottic could be displaced as well and that it needs to be secured. And, you know, a commercial device like a tube tamer will absolutely work and should work on every superglottic. And it's one of the soapboxes I've gotten on with, with our people. It's like, you have to secure it. If you're going to drop a superglottic, you need to secure it. You just can't drop it. Just like an ET tube. Just like an ET Just like an ET. It's interesting what you're both talking about here. And it's something that... Uh, one of the things that happens because we work together all the time is we frequently are sharing ideas. Each We're all working on lectures and it's like, you know, I'm working on this. And um, what keeps coming up is how simple things can be. And uh, the importance of uh, Dr. Pons taught us a term called the uh, technical, technical imperative, imperative. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where your, your care is driven by the toys that you have. And it, it's uh, it's really important to think about how simple this is. If you consider that the patient's really telling you what they need, and that you should be giving them everything they need, no more, no more, no less. Uh, and it, it's really the most important thing is to be tuned into your patient. When you can see their skin condition, you can see whether or not what you're doing is helping their respiratory rate and their pulse rate is controlling. Uh, all the things that happen between nothing is benign. Everything that you do either helps or hurts the patient. And you should be like into that rhythm of figuring out what you're doing is working for them and continue that throughout your care. It's not device dependent. It's not device dependent at all. Right. Dr. And, McSwain taught us the idea about principles versus preferences. And the principle is to secure the airway and make, or make sure that their ventilator control the bleeding. The device you use, the simplest, the fastest, the thing you're the best at is the best, not 
not the most complicated. Especially in an urban environment. Yeah. I mean, and it goes back to, I mean, we have to look at still deg skill degradation. You know, I mean, it's very simple. Back when, back when Mike and I were working back in the early days, there weren't many paramedics around. I mean, you know, the, if you worked full time as a paramedic where we worked, you probably did two, three, four intubations a week because we were intercepting every BLS unit coming into our catchment area. Um, and, you know, the the number of tubes is just huge. I mean, so you get a cardiac arrest, you go out, you intubate them, you continue in the BLS truck to the hospital uh, with a paramedic on board. Now, I actually went back and I actually looked at the area that we used to work in. Every single one of those little fire departments and little ambulance services on the periphery are all now paramedic level no more patients are, are arresting. I mean, you know, now those paramedics there, so you've got the same number of arrests. Now you have what, what I call status paramedicus, where every single service has, you know, one, two, three paramedic trucks on board. So that means that the average paramedics in, in those areas are only getting, you know, a couple intubations a year. I mean, can you truly master that skill? I mean, anesthesia says, if you read the research from anesthesia, it says it takes between 20 and 25 oral endotracheal intubations for somebody to master the skill of intubation. And they're talking about in the OR. You know, they're talking about somebody that has, you know, had uh, pre-anesthesia assessment. You know, you know what their melon potty is. You know, they've had atropine, so their mouth's dry. They've been MPO since midnight. You know, so those are the relatively easy intubations of the world. You know, it's not the three o'clock in the morning on the college campus with a beer and pizza fountain turned on um, that you're trying to fight your way through. So, you know, nowadays we have to sort of ask ourselves that question is, yes, intubation is good. Is this patient going to be truly intubated when they, you know, end up in the ICU at the hospital? Maybe. But do I need to do that? Or is my time better spent making sure that this person's got an open, secured airway by some other device and, you know, they're not aspirating on their vomit at this time? You know, intubation isn't the only way of securing that. So we have to think about things like that is, you know, what's best for this patient at this time where I am? Because every single patient is different. I mean, we all know that. We look at an algorithm for like acute pulmonary edema. Well, every acute pulmonary edema patient is totally different than the next. You know, it's like, do they have a blood pressure? Do they not have a blood pressure? Are they on a five-story walk-up and I've got to figure out a way to get them down the stairs? You know, how much oxygen do I have? You know, is my CPAP unit going to run out before I get down to the truck? I mean, all these different things that we have to look at, um, you know, certainly are things I have to take into account between these patients. So it, it seems like we've gone on a, an airway topic, but yeah. I, I think like last night at dinner, we were talking a little bit about upcoming lectures and I made the suggestion that we do something about back to basics. And um, I've been a paramedic for 30 some odd years, pushing on 40 years. And um, I, I fully support paramedicine and the use of paramedics. They, they absolutely have a place in the pre-hospital setting. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I come from a high functioning system or I think it's high functioning system. We use, <laughs> I, we use push dose pressors. We have um, IV pumps on every uh, ambulance. We, so we can control the um, level fed. We, uh, you know, use video, video laryngoscopy. We do uh, pre-hospital antibiotics. Um, but I still are a big advocate of like back to basics. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't exactly. forget about, where you came from and the, the initial patient contact and what's right right for the patient at this time. Well, well so, so, so something interesting. I mean, so tourniquets are kind of a big thing now. You know, they have been maybe for what, last four years or so. So tourniquets are big. But one thing that I don't know if you're seeing in Worcester, but we're certainly seeing in Charlotte, is that 
anybody who's shot in the arm when EMS arrives probably has a tourniquet applied. And the question is, did they need it? I mean, and we're looking at probably about 50% of our patients that are shot in the leg or shot in the arm. They weren't going to exsanguinate from that gunshot wound. You know, a tourniquet was applied by law enforcement or by, you know, an EMS first responder because they're like, oh, he's got a hole in his arm. I've got to put a tourniquet on this because that's what I do. There's a little bit of blood, but certainly direct pressure would have stopped. Have you seen the same thing in Worcester? We do, but... I'm probably going to take the other side of this because I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I, I, I guess, you know, what keeps coming to mind is what we're having this conversation is HALO, high acuity, low occurrence mm-hmm. events. So in our environment, an urban environment, we're five minutes from the hospital. We've stressed and taught the police officers to carry tourniquets, how to use tourniquets, use them appropriately. Someone gets shot, they put a tourniquet on. We're with the trauma center within five minutes. It's a level one trauma team activation. My critical thinking says... In five minutes with a tourniquet on, or probably more like 10 or 12, what's the downside? If they get evaluated by a surgeon, I mean, I don't know. What if it was an artery that was hit? I didn't see it before the police officer put the tourniquet on. That's what we've taught them to do. And is it a life saved? Right. So I think it's. I think that's kind of a good thing. You know, when you start talking about that same halo event in an, uh, a rural environment where someone gets their hand caught in farm machinery, they're an hour away from a trauma center and you put a tourniquet on. I think that becomes now a little bit more of the critical thinking of like, does this need to be on? Which goes to what we talked about all along. It's like the right patient for the right procedure. Is it not a technical imperative to do it right? It's just, we have it, we should do the right thing for the right patient all the time. Your your idea about, and and it's a talk I'm doing actually, because we were talking about this and um, the back to basics approach fits in with the other things we've been talking about. And even making sure that what you're doing is beneficial to the patient, not just the treatments, but some of the exams. You know, if you're saying, oh, we, you know, the latest thing is ultrasound, I want to get ultrasound. And if you've got uh, less than three minute response time and less than three minutes at a hospital, you doing an ultrasound in the field isn't helping anybody. And talk about difficulty maintaining skills. Uh, being able to do, be good at doing ultrasound really depends on first very good you know, high level training and then being able to do it often enough to maintain the skills. So we have to keep again in focus is what I'm doing good for the patient? is the technical procedure or exam that I'm doing going to change anything, whether it's the way we're going to treat them or the outcome. And it's important to keep that stuff because one of the things that falls when we keep getting more complicated, more complicated is any communication between the medic and the patient. You're so tied up with all this other stuff. You don't realize nobody said a word to this poor sucker for, you know, 10 minutes. And we have to keep recentering ourselves Mm -hmm. back to the patient and not on the things that we want to do. And I hate, I mean, we're not trying to say this as a negative thing. We all did the work. We all still do the work. It's just a matter of saying, what can we do to make this a, a better experience for the patient and to optimize the outcomes? Right. Yeah, I mean, we need, we need to go back to what we used to do. I mean, humanize patient mm-hmm. care. I think the humanization is, mm-hmm. is the key thing. It's like still to this day, walk in the room and the first thing out of my mouth isn't like, let me see your finger, right. put the pulse ox probe on. The first thing out of my night, mouth is, hey, I'm Michael. I'm here to help you. What's hey, your ma'am. name? Hi, ma'am. Yeah. What, yeah. what seems to be man? I'm Mike. I'm, I'm here to help you. Yeah, I'm exactly. You. That's, and that's just, where we need, that's where, that's, that's where we need to train our providers to be. Yep. You have no idea how important that contact is. Now at the point that this story that I'm going to tell quickly, I was an orderly, but it was my job for this young girl that had cut her head um, to hold her head while they stitched up her head. Mm-hmm. And I talked to her the whole time, the whole time this thing was going on. I talked to her and I ran into her years later and she tapped me on the shoulder and she said, I remember you, you were the guy that held my head when I was being taken care of. And you talked to me the whole time and I'm a doctor today. 
Hmm. You mean, you, these little moments in time, you know, like we talked to our guys that say, oh, there was a bunch of garbage runs yesterday or, you know, nobody was really sick. And it's like, you know what? I used to ask all my students in the room. It's like, how many of you have ever been in an ambulance? And invariably in any class or course I was teaching, nobody put their hand up. Yet we have all these ambulance calls. So I think start with the assumption that this is the worst day in that person's life. And you have the opportunity to make it a meaningful, memorable experience and maybe life-changing. You never know those little single interactions. Well, especially, especially I told one story, but there's dozens. Right, especially with the elderly patients. I yeah. mean, you know, you know, what might seem as something simple that, you know, if the person was 20 years or 30 years old, you'd look at them and go, well, why didn't you go and, you know, why didn't you get your wife to drive you in the car or to the hospital or to the clinic? You know, when an elderly patient calls you, it's usually because you're the last resort. You are it. You know, you're the people that they call be when they've run out of options. And, you know, we have to be advocates for the elderly, just like we're, you know, everybody in the world wants, will be an advocate for a child. Yep. Without a doubt, everybody thinks of that as it's my job to stand up for a child when they're an extremist. And, you know, when there's different problems that they're dealing with, sometimes we forget that with the elderly patients. Maybe that's because I'm retiring next week. I'm thinking all of a sudden about, you know, how EMS handles the elderly. Uh, but I mean, it, you know, it, it, we're there, right? right. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things that you just have to think about that, you know, this is the worst, as Michael said, this is the worst day in that patient's life or maybe one of the worst days in that patient's life. And, you know, we are it, you know, we yeah. are, we are what is going to help them. We make the first contact with them. So, you know, make it meaningful. I mean, for instance, with, with an elderly patient, I always ask, you know, if there's, if you have somebody who fell down and broke a hip and you know, they're not going to be back home for a while, it's not going to be quick, just sutures and come back home. I'm always like, can I lock your doors for you? Can I get a crew member? Can I get a police officer to lock your doors and lock your windows? You know, you know, elderly patients worry about their pets and, you know, rightfully so. Is there, is there somebody I can get to come over and take your dog? You know, is there a family member I can let know that you're, you know, your cat's in the house. These things are important to them, especially if it's not something that needs expedient transport to the hospital, and, you know, that will make them, much more receptive to patient care because it's one less thing they have to worry about. And if you do that, if you treat every patient that way, you're going to be a much happier medic. When you, when you approach your job that way, every day you're going to say, you know, people think situations were better off because I was there. Even if you felt like it was not that critical, everything went better because you came in on top of it instead of below it. Exactly. I mean, you know, and again, this is, this is, it's kind of changed over the years. And I think we're getting back to more humanistic approach to uh, emergency medical care, both in the emergency departments and pre-hospitally. But again, when, when we all started, it was very much, you know, that was one of the only tools you had in your toolbox to talk to the patient all the way to the hospital. It was your head, your heart, I mean, your it hands. Was, you know, I, start, I started as a basic EMT in a Cadillac ambulance. And, you know, at that Show time, you, did, you didn't even, hey, I mean, you had a Pontiac, right? <laughs> I, uh, I did. You know, we, we were in a rich neighborhood. We had Cadillacs. Um, but I mean, you had... You had those situations where, you know, you didn't you didn't have everything that you needed for this patient. What you had was to give them comfort, talk to them and give them expedient transport to the hospital. And then all of a sudden paramedics came about in communities. And all of a sudden, you know, we thought with a trauma patient or a patient with an MI that we could affect change staying on the scene and treating this person on the scene because we're doing everything that they're going to do in the emergency department. And, you know, now it, it's come back full circle of, you know, you know, just because, as Michael said before, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And Dr. Stuckey yesterday was doing a presentation here, and he's, he's a trauma surgeon in New Orleans. And, you know, one of the things he said now is if they've got a patient with a gunshot abdomen coming in and, you know, their vital signs are questionable at all, 
they bypass the emergency department, just like we do with STEMIs. They'll see the patient in the hallway. You know, they might grab a quick film. And then all of a sudden, they take them right to the OR. You know, if they know they're going to have to go explore, they take them right into the operating suite. So they bypass even what would best happen in the in the ED, that five minutes in the trauma room in the ED. They just bypass that. So they've saved themselves five minutes of this patient bleeding into their abdomen. So at our institution, and I'd like to take credit for this one, but it was a trauma service that actually came up with this. And I actually, it's a brilliant idea, is uh, we do direct a CT for uh, stroke patients. So at trauma service, uh, a, a fall from standing with a head strike and an anticoagulant is an automatic level two trauma activation. In our institution, that's a full trauma team activation. Do you know how many uh, people fall and strike their head in an urban environment and are anticoagulated? So that was dragging a trauma team down for a full trauma team activation for a little old lady who's scared and now has 15 people cutting clothes and poking and prodding. So our trauma service said, let's try something. So they went and do a direct to CT for head strikes. So now when we do a still do a level two call in, but the trauma team and the ED attending have the option of just sending that patient right to CAT scan to see if there actually is a bleed. And if it's simply a fall head strike and you just happen to be anticoagulated, but you do not have a, a head bleed, you don't have a full trauma team activation, but the trauma surgeon is there when you come in and can make that decision. Right. And you know, it's, it's a great idea. And it's also the human touch for the patient but in a way, it's, we're still back to research, right? Because we're doing something different. We've taken an idea that came from the stroke service, applied it to something different, mm -hmm. and we're actually looking at it. And it's, it's really tightly QA to see if there's any misses. And we don't have misses. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to, I mean, my early days as a basic EMT, we actually did 12 leads in the field. You know, we had a cardiologist at our small local hospital that just wanted to see if we could do them in the field. So we had a battery-powered Cambridge machine that printed out one simple strip that you had to cut them out and mount them on a piece of paper. But we were doing 12 leads in the field. And basically, he proved that EMTs can be trained to do 12 leads in the field. It's not difficult to do 12 leads. We all know that interpreting 12 leads is important. What we really know is, you know, that 12, doing 12 leads in the field and teaching your medics to interpret 12 leads really didn't have anything, I hate to say meaningful, but probably didn't change patient outcome until we would start to bypass the emergency department and go directly to the cath lab with our STEMI patients. You know, that's what made the difference when it started to save, you know, the, uh, you know, door to cath lab or door to drug time. That's when we truly made the difference. So, I mean, you know, that's kind of where I think we are now with like ultrasound is there's plenty of papers out there. Some, some, some of it, not great research because the numbers are small or the study wasn't designed well, but enough to say that paramedics can be trained to do ultrasound in the field. But if it's not going to change a difference, if you're not going to get to bypass the emergency department based upon what that ultrasound said, if you're not going to get them to the OR quicker, does that ultrasound in a traumatic abdominal event truly change your practice? So, I mean, you know, these are all things that I, I, I think just need to be looked at. And we, we got to make sure we don't fall in that technical imperative with everything new that comes down the line um, when we're looking at research and we're looking at should we do it in our facility. So I think when you take a perfect device with a purpose and a perfect device, and you hand it to a paramedic. The one thing I can guarantee, and you're a champion of this, Greg, is what else can I do with it? Mm -hmm. How can I make it yep. better? This is perfect. So you start talking about ultrasound. So everyone's looking at the FASTE exams and mm -hmm. uh, they're 
are they able to do them in the field? And does it actually have, make a difference? Right. The jury's out on that, right. right? It depends on where it is. But what else can you do with that yeah. ultrasound? How many studies have you read about um, cardiac standstill? Right. And can you use your ultrasound device? Tube placement. For, Tube, well, exactly, right. right. So you know, cardiac standstill. Especially in an air medical program right. where you can't hear anything mm -hmm. anyways, right. and now you can do an ultrasound and see if you can see air in the lungs. Um, how know. much time is that adding to those cases? Because you're talking about fairly critical cases, and you're, you're using another exam to try to see what you do when it, by admittedly by what you talked about earlier, well, I mean, clear. The basic is better. So well, I, I, in this case, I'm talking about in transit. It's right. not like, it's not, you know, they're you're still not going to the end. You're, you're, you're not going to get just... a good fast exam while you're moving, but you'll be able to look at your endotracheal tube. <laughs> you'll be able to look at cardiac. That's exactly scale. what I'm trying to yeah. say. But in the cardiac, okay, sorry, what my Boston accent, the cardiac standstill yeah, no yeah. <laughs> is Worcester, not Boston. <laughs> the cardiac standstill um, is for your end of, uh, you know, for termination of care. Right. And it's like, do you, do you need to do that asystole 12 way? Do you just run an ultrasound over and see cardiac standstill? But do you even, I mean, what's the need there? If you've got asystole in, uh, in a patient, do you really need to see anything beyond the asystole and somebody that's down? Um, I don't know. There, I, I mean, know. I've seen some of the, the I've seen papers. some of the research on it and what it, from what I remember, and I, I can't quote it directly. Let right me guess, now. inconclusive. Well, no, but I mean, <laughs> what, what it showed was you can get uh, ROSC in some of those patients. Now, whether those patients ever progressed out of the hospital and had a meaningful life after that, I cannot remember in, in that particular study that, that I read, and I'm sure somebody out there, and this, this kind of goes to what we're doing this afternoon is, you know, if you don't know how to look up a study, if you, if you don't know how to do that, find somebody, you know, find your medical director, uh, better yet, find a resident uh, who's willing to be excited about showing you how they just learned how to actually look up studies and that, and, you know, how to look at a study and find it and apply it to what you're thinking about um, because again you know the, the jury's out on ultrasound i mean certainly air medical it's you know some things in air medical are more important because of the sound issues that you have you know during transport so rather than staying on specific studies that we've looked at our topics can we take a couple of minutes just to talk about like what really is research in ems and i'm really wanting to jump on the poster presentations and poster topics which you know we we look at um, research and we think it has to be a 10,000 person study, double blinded, randomized, IRB approved. Well, they should be IRB approved. Um, but like, what can you do as an EMS provider to do research? Well, there's posters. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can get approval with a medical director to do some type of a, of a small study, look at things that are important to you, to your system, collect a little bit of data, look at it, come to some conclusions and write it up as a poster format. You know, to that end, I mean, we're, we're at GEMS and, you know, each year we run uh, a poster presentation uh, at GEMS of just, just that, just smaller studies to get people involved of usually people who are pursuing their bachelor's or master's in EMS and, or, you know, public health and need a place that, you know, their, their, their paper isn't going to get into American College of Surgeons Journal on Trauma, you know, but it, it's a small number. And sometimes it's important things. For, I mean, I remember one from two years ago um, and I, Forgive me, I can't remember her name. If she's listening to this podcast, please send me an email and we can, we can edit it. But she was from a small service and, and she was looking at contamination of oxygen cylinders, um, you know, yeah, for, for MRSA, which can be across all the spectrum. And this is before COVID hit and everything else. But she was looking at MRSA and they looked at oxygen cylinders on the ambulance, oxygen cylinders that were 
after they were used and ready to go back out and be, be filled by a third-party vendor. And then the oxygen cylinders, they got in from the third-party vendor. Uh, everybody in that system thought somebody else was decontaminating the oxygen cylinders at some point in that uh, in that time. And frankly, nobody was. The vendor thought that they were being decontaminated before they got to them to be refilled. The ambulance service thought that the, uh, that the, you know, that the vendor was decontaminating the cylinders before they got them back and they were all brand new. And the EMS, you know, the guy in the truck thought that the new cylinder coming off the wall was, you know, brand new and fine. There was no MRSA. So, you know, that was a relatively small study um, that had sort of some big consequences and just makes everybody go, it's, it's like one of those aha moments. It's like, huh, how did that slip through the cracks? I mean, are things being done? And it certainly changed their practice and it certainly made me think, and I actually went back to Charlotte and, you know, gave it to our logistics guys to go, you know, and they looked into it to see what was happening with our tanks from our third-party vendors. So, you know, again, small studies matter. They absolutely do. And, you know, don't forget about your own workforce. We can actually be our own study mm -hmm. subjects. You know, you have to, you, you do have to know about um, vulnerable populations and who can actually be studied, but, and you can't force people to ever do it, but you can have people fill out voluntary questionnaires. I mean, we did a pretty cool study with our paramedics um, about capacity. Like, does a patient have capacity to um, uh, sign a refusal? So we had a bunch of medical director tapes that were de-identified, played to our paramedics, and they just, based on listening to the tape, made a decision, did the patient have capacity or not? And it was just compiled of like, what was our decision? Would you accept a refusal from this person or not? Do they have the capacity to make that decision? And it was kind of interesting as to like in the variance. So what I thought was capacity, someone else thought was different. So it pointed us in the direction of like education as well as our operations. It's like, well, this is the things we got to look for. So it's a lot of little things that you can do. Right. Um, call it research, because right. it is, right. and it can absolutely affect well, your program. It doesn't have to be right. video laryngoscopy right. or ultrasound. Exactly. It can be as simple as looking at MRSA on your oxygen tanks. I mean, I've always used the case method. Are you guys familiar with the case method? Okay, copy and steal everything. Yes. Yeah. If I if I if I find somebody that's doing something well, I'm stealing it from them. You know, I mean, I'm you know, if a service next to me is, is you know has what appears to be good results, or if this study you know about the O2 tanks, for instance, I'm going to steal that with that station. Right. Of course. You know, uh, but but you know, it's like it, it's important that we share our things. So this little service, you know, that, you know, and again, it was a small service. They had like three or four trucks. You know, she did this study on this. This can impact, you know, this could impact New York City EMS. It could be, you know, Finney EMS could be impacted by that small study that she did just with hers. So, I mean, we can't overlook it just because it's not a big, gigantic study that didn't get published, you know, in a major medical journal. So, yeah, you know, that's important. Thank you for giving us such a big chunk of your time. Uh, we've got another presentation here to do here at Gems. Uh, so if you want to be with us at EMS today at 1.30, down by the Lucas Center, rooms one. Lucas uh, 10 through 12. So 10 through 12. About an hour. We'll be over there talking about uh, 
stuff that worked, didn't work, whatever, whatever you want to talk about, we're going to be open today. Yeah. Stop by the booth. And stop exactly. by the booth at 10022 uh, just to spend some time with us and we'll talk to you. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I mean, you're going to have to walk by and look for, you know, our logo because I can't find our booth. This place is so big and there's so much going on here. You know, if you're listening remotely for, from this and, and listening to us live and, and you're not here, you need to get here next year yeah. because this, this thing is just gigantic. We'll be back. And to Greg's point, we're going to bring the, uh, the poster demonstrations back where we're going to get research to to show y'all and have them tell us about them and it'll be a competition where somebody's going to win something for doing good work in the field these small shops like we've been talking about you can do your own research doesn't matter how big or small you are you can do it and we're going to show you some next year so thanks for your time i appreciate this and uh thanks for your trust thanks everybody thank you